uh, just to start this conversation, there was quite a bit of voter apathy looking at the numbers. Almost 8 million uh, people didn't vote largely the youth. Uh, for, for a country, one that is young, vibrant, we have institutions, government institutions, we have a constitution. What do, what do you make of this level of voter apathy, particularly among the youth? Yeah. So the youth are so complex uh, to me. And also because even when we talk about voter apathy, uh, it didn't just come from nowhere. It's normally from individuals around you because youth still depend on that family circle. So your political beliefs, your upbringing, your religion, it's because of who's around you and who influences you. So that apathy is actually from their parents. And that apathy um, is actually from people in their household who are older than them. Uh, because we still have a very ageist culture where we are to obey or listen and respect uh, elders at all times, even if they are wrong. Uh, you don't necessarily object. So we're still there. And when I say or see that 8 million didn't vote or even register, it's a sign of a rebellion. What I'm seeing is rebellion. I think young people are sending a message across. If my parents or my grandparents, they say things are not working for them. I have witnessed my dad having the same job for 30 years and he has nothing to show for it. He just struggles his entire lifetime. Why should I think that this country cares about me? And I think youth are beginning to see that it's a lie. Um, does my vote really matter? Does my vote really count? And so I think they are speaking differently. A lot of people were surprised. But the turnout for Kenya is still high. When you're talking about in the 50s, there are countries in Africa that don't make it to 30% turnout. As much as it's a decline, it's a decline globally. And so I do think that youth want something different. They just don't know what it is. And they do feel that voting is a waste of their time. In fact, a number were like, I don't see why we are still voting if the institutions themselves we don't think that they are independent so they are questioning the process they are questioning their participation and we're talking about a generation that likes to be heard they've grown around social media where the first thing it asks you is what's on your mind and then you're telling them to be part of a process that doesn't care about what's on their mind so they're choosing not to engage what, what, what did you make of this, uh, particularly because the last 30 years, if you look at Kenya's governance architecture, uh, in the 90s, we fought multi-party, uh, we removed more in 2002, we had a decade of somewhat great economic gains under the Kibaki administration, 2010, we passed the constitution, and with, with it, a lot of plethora of, uh, you know, of institutions, policy, so... One, one could argue that now there's space for youth participation, but then what's the argument for, for, not, for them not participating? But then more importantly, uh, what is it about uh, the state that doesn't allow space for youth to participate in? So the space is there, and even uh, with the work that we do, you'll find, for instance, you know, we work in the counties, and there'll be like a, a committee that's formed for the ward level. And there's always a position for women, PWD, youth. 
So they have taken the constitution so seriously to those positions existing. However, when it comes to who sits in those positions, that's where the issue lies. Um, a lot of people are unaware about those existing bodies and entities. Then secondly, you have individuals who are not supposed to belong there. It's someone's relative or it just so happened on that day they were present and they decided, let me be involved even though they don't understand processes. So it's two things. They are opportunities, not as much as they should be. They are few. Number two, the few that are there, most young people are unaware of their existence. So information is limited. So even when we talk about information on issues in our country, it's so hard to get information that should be public. Even though, you know, in the constitution, access to information exists, uh, we're still struggling and grappling with how can I as a citizen get access to this information if I wanted to know something happening in the public domain? So that also meets its challenges. And then the relation where when you're sharing with young people, you know the processes of participation and you know county government can't do much or anything without uh, public engagement and public participation with the community. Um, a lot of youth do not see the relation between what is within the budget and the, the plans that occur in the process of budget and the resources to be able to actualize something leading to development. They're connected. So a, a lot of youth will come and demand for something, but they missed stage one, which is demanding for it at the budget process to be able to have resources for it. And so it becomes very ad hoc. And their participation now comes at a place where they're already frustrated, they're angry, and they feel that nothing is working for them. And so even engagement and collaboration with government becomes difficult. So when we talk about the constitution, we hardly talk about where young people are learning about it. Uh, for many, they'll be watching a television show for those who have access to TV or hearing on a radio interview, mainly lawyers quoting certain articles and not necessarily the articles in relation to their everyday living. And it's normally during seasons of engagement on a political conversation. And, and they love those conversations. But to be able to bring it to their everyday life, there's a disconnect. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I, I get worried when people come and, you know, the organizations that are teaching public participation, but the English and the jargon, when you're talking about midterm evaluation to nomads, people who probably didn't do secondary education, but they have ranches of cattle and they are wealthy in that regard. And a lot of them are leaders in their community. If you come with large documents and many of them end up being these files of paper and then you introduce it at that level, what value is that engagement? If it's something that is not basically ingrained in us as citizens from a young age and, and the importance of that participation and then slowly toward how your engagement matters, uh, then we will continue to see this whole. I think what the constitution did 
was give direct power to citizens immediately without citizens understanding that they needed to interact and engage with the constitution to even realize their power. So they don't know. And so it just sits there for so many. And now I'm trying to figure out this gap you're talking about, this is almost information isometry where the youth don't get this information and when they get it, you know, as you're saying, it's uh, volumes of, of jargon and legalese etc. Is it intentional? Mm, yes, it is. We have seen it uh, being utilized as a tool um, to get ahead and pass certain things without the public knowing it is intentional. And we saw a lot of that happening during COVID where a lot of decisions were made with zero public engagement and blamed on COVID. And a lot of people are not going to read through the entire document. It's not going to happen. Uh, but then how can we interact with people who are passionate about their community and capacity building them to be able to spearhead a lot of these conversations with county? So it is intentional for many to have these large documents, and it is intentional to invite certain individuals to these meetings to keep them closed without notice or short notice uh, so that you have people who just give you the stamp of approval, which is what you're looking for. It's not a debate. Uh, you don't want people to interact and critique. And, and it's interesting because it's supposed to be a collaboration, but we have a culture where what government says is what goes. We have a culture where even you as a citizen, to give feedback, you're looked down upon. So imagine giving feedback or um, having a valid point and giving it to a government official from your youth group. You're not going to be taken seriously. No. So we have to now coordinate and collaborate where we emphasize that youth groups can't do this alone. They have to form networks. They have to form caucuses. And that's the only way government will take you seriously when you have like a lobby group and you work with your numbers. And so it's also to be aware of those challenges that a lot of young people face even when it comes to engagement itself. And, and how, I mean, if someone who's worked a lot with the youth, uh, as a piece that Nanjala Nyabola wrote years ago, she said that uh, uh, English is the language of policy and Kiswahili is the language of politics. So uh, to my mind, there's a, there's a whole normative gap not just in terms of language, but systems, uh, you know, people, etc., ideas, narratives. How do you bridge that gap between, between policy and politics? How do you bridge that gap? So for a lot of the work that we do, we find ourselves being the middlemen. Um, I'm constantly dealing with messages from youth in different counties saying, I really want to do something about this and I don't know how. So we have members of the team drafting memos, drafting letters, doing all the English jargon from Nairobi, and then sending that letter with their letterhead and signatures. Because also what we have found is when a local youth group CBO writes the same letter, we can give them the text and they copy paste and the chair puts their signature, county government will take them seriously. But as soon as they see a logo of a national youth organization, or an organization that's based in Nairobi or something, an outsider from the county, uh, county government tends to pay more attention to them. So we've seen that as an advantage. Also, 
as a protection mechanism for them. Because we haven't talked about the, the politics of good governance. In Kenya, when you come and say, okay, we want to see the budget process or we want to see the, the audit report and we're curious or we would like to receive answers as to, you know, this line, this much was, was utilized for something. Uh, where did it all go? It's been over budgeted. You want to find more information. The first question that will be asked, who sent you? Who's coming for my position? This is political. Because you, there's no way you care. Why? And so there's, there's also that aspect, not just around the, the language, there's the politics of holding individuals accountable. And it gets worse as you get closer to an election season. People become more paranoid. Um, a lot of our public participation for us or barazas would be cancelled uh, because politicians come and all of a sudden they try and take over the meeting because a sitting MCA doesn't want you to share about projects that were not completed because they're thinking about their second term or re-election or someone who's interested in that position wants to show up and share how, yeah, yeah, I, I said that he wouldn't be able to complete it. I can and so they're using it as a campaign ground. So Kenya is a very political country and every single day is political in our country. And so we have to, especially with the work that we do, we recognize that. And so even at the moment, we have a few youth who have actually uh, submitted petitions to county governments. And in their petitions, Siasa Place will be an interested party. And they do this again for their own protection. And it's true, politics is done in a completely different language, your mother tongue or Kiswahili, but also it's not the ideologies of positions. It's not the ideologies of um, what someone was supposed to bring or develop and partner and do. That other language is always personal. And you can't even sit down and have a discussion about what that person said. It's always an attack. It's always either, I, I, I wrote once how to survive in Kenyan politics, you have to be really good at articulating things with humor and seriousness and not having a point. That's how you will survive. But when it comes to the technical work and the work that needs to actually be graded or given a scorecard in terms of performance, that individual doesn't have to perform. They don't, because we do not measure. And, and a lot of times people don't even know where to start uh, when it comes to measuring that. But yes, as you engage in this sector, it's to understand that there is also politics in accountability. When speaking of accountability and, and this space, uh, a lot of work has gone, has been around, particularly around accountability, has been centered around uh, vertical accountability. So uh, making sure we have good governance for this, the executive, the legislature, and still a lot of work needs to be done in that regard, but also horizontal accountability. So the judiciary uh, holding the executive to account, and we saw that, we have seen that in our public life 2017 ruling, 2022 ruling, you know. But little has been done around social accountability because of not understanding the, the culture, you know, what, what you're talking about, the different language, the different norms that, that guide that space. How do, we, how do we not really 
activate that space, but how do we engage in that space, understanding the nuance to the extent that it can become it becomes useful as a space for engineering our political culture. Mm, I think it's important for for us not to clock out um, because a lot of the people that we engage they come from very rural young people who normally have no idea about this space at all and so you start from from scratch and even when you start from scratch again like we will find a very engaged say youth leader but he has a class 7 education and so he is really good at calling people together, rallying up, but then that's it for him. He's like, give me the direction of what I need to do and how I need to do it. So what I'm saying is there's a disconnect. Because even when we talk about um, this culture, we have to recognize that even how we organize has changed. Um, what we find important has changed. So even if we were to look at, say, the 90s and how the church was so involved with our civic rights or student government. Today it's not the same. Completely different dynamic. In fact, we're not even sure if we trust our churches, we feel that our churches have picked sides as well, our churches are very political, they might as well be politicians. And then when we look at student leadership, a lot of people will tell you it's gone down the drain. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, these student leaders don't even understand what um, this country needs to aspire to, because a lot of times it would be those student leaders who become our national leaders. And so now we don't even want them to transition because we have such bad examples of student leaders right. in national government. Mm -hmm. Where like, just let them stay in that student government and hopefully not cross over to national politics. So that dynamic has changed. So I think the only way that we can begin to see a change is that we need a sense of an emerging voice that has to tap into the existing public. And I see a rise, interestingly, of influencers, people who have such large followings online. Uh, some of them might be celebrities. Some of them maybe have an online business. Some of them just put up their content. They're just someone who is popular. You don't even know where to place them. So they have this large following and people actually chew on every word they say. If, if these people could sort of be geared toward, guys, there's a whole space here about engagement, um, about your role as a responsible citizen, about your rights as an individual in this country and how you can play a part in it and, and the vision that this country has for all of us. If they could begin to that way, they can use whatever method, mechanism, style they would like to share that content on their platforms, we would see a shift. We would see a shift and even they would be able to spark conversations in spaces that are different um, using music. You know, when we're seeing people like King Kaka or whatever producing songs about politics, how quickly, you know, it would gain this fame and people would start questioning or Saudi soul, you know, questioning some governance issues. There's a whole conversation there that people would be like debating. So I think we need to change in terms of our lens of, of who does this work. Uh, Kenya, I receive a lot of messages from people 
where they are angry with me. Like you're supposed to hold this government accountable. And I'm like, we all are. <laughs> it's all our work. Uh, but we have this um, like savior mentality. It's the job of the activists. Like the activists are supposed to do it while I continue with my daily work or maybe the church. The church should step in and do something. So there's this sense that someone is going to come in and do something about it. And, and we need to change that perception that there's, there's a hero on the way or there's someone who's going to guide us or there's someone who are waiting for. So as soon as we understand that it's, it's all of us, it's all our responsibility and our right, I think we will begin to see this gap close and people will begin to question and want to engage, hopefully, or question why they don't have access to certain things or why things are being run in a certain way. But right now it's, it's completely dead. It's completely dead. I mean, I was talking about it being completely dead. Uh, my own sense, my own sense of the, 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 the youth, the youth apathy in this country is for 60, 60, 63 years this year, sixty years in fact, this year since uh, Kenya gained independence, there has been a particular narrative that has held the Kenyan the Kenyan idea together, right? I mean it's created by by Mzajomo Kenyatta will will eradicate poverty, disease and ignorance. And for 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 a generation that's coming of age uh, has seen their parents, their great grandparents, their grandparents uh, still holding on to this idea. Uh, to what extent, in your view, uh, has do you think the independence project has collapsed? And if so, do we need to revive it? Do we need to let it go? Do we need to start something else? Do we need to? How do we move from here? It's definitely collapsed. So, last year during the Independence Day, the Jamhuri Day celebrations, the team was looking for content to put on the social media platforms. And um, we looked for Jomo Kenyatta's first speech. And man, we cut it word for word, no editing, especially when he was talking about youth. It's the same challenges and talking about the same avenues or things we need to fix for the youth of Kenya. And so you can see that we're still talking about the same issues, the same things. So unfortunately, we do not know a lot of these visions that are for our country. And it is, I believe, from the executive, it has to be from the level up to be able to instill it in the population. Because even when you look at a lot of countries that had leaders, leaders were able to ingrain a particular culture or a mission, even to their larger population. Everyone knew that there's an agenda that we're all working toward together. And we don't have that. And, and I can say that for a fact, even in the youth space, um, there's so much competition uh, because of scarcity. So when you are constantly looking for employment, you're worried about how am I going to finish school? How am I going to even get to school? You're constantly thinking about access to basic needs. You're not going to look at your brother and sister and see a partner. You're going to see a competitor. And so when we're growing in a country of just plain old competition, 
it's very difficult to build anything together because you're more concerned about that person is going to get ahead of me and that one, how did they do that? And when we encourage politicians or people in leadership, we encourage them to enter leadership because of their wealth. We are literally not voting people based on their character. It's about how much they have. That means publicly, our perception and narrative on, on what is important for the country and for us has changed. What is important is self. My self-wealth. I have to make it. It doesn't matter <laughs> who I have to step on the way up there. I'm making it and I'm making it to the top. And, that's, and that is a mentality that a lot of young people have right now. And, and it has become culture. So for me, I think that even not even to, to start over, it has to be almost anew because we're dealing with a population that is so used to grappling or grabbing everything in front of them that you now want to tell them it's time to share. No, it's not going to happen overnight. And, and it has to be coming from a place of understanding where young people are now and, and then meeting where they are now and then hoping that you can get to them to be able to see that we need to, to build together. If we, if we don't do that, uh, we're not going to build anything. My last question, Irima. How do we get the youth to start dreaming again? Mm, the youth just need access to opportunities. If they're just given a better environment to live and it's just access to our basic needs, they will dream. You don't even need to tell them to. Um, a lot of them are just struggling with access to basics. And that's what's creating a lot of depression, um, suicides, and um, it's concerning because it's so sad when you meet people who the only thing they have done is work hard and they have been tarmacking and unemployed for five plus years. And, and you're seeing people who are getting access to opportunities are people who know people. And, and this is becoming more and more common where you have to be able to have access to individuals to have access to opportunities. And, and I had a meeting with a young man last week. He has products in the supermarket. And, and I went and I told him, you've done such a good job. And he's looking at me and saying, I only have three products on the shelf. I wanted 10. I can't even afford it. Um, you know, my license was rejected three times because I refused to pay a bribe. I refused. So when you have young people who are you know, hardworking, they want to do something with their lives, they want to dream, and there are so many barriers keeping them from dreaming. Where you're being forced, you have to go the wrong way to make it in this country. You're being forced. As long as we continue to have that, youth will not be able to dream because only those with access to wealth will be able to make it in this country, and that's where we're heading, especially when we see that we had one of the most expensive elections. I'm worried because it means in 2027, youth will barely be able to campaign, barely. So for you to even make it as a leader in this country, you'll have to have wealth. Nobody cares how you get it, but you have to have it. And, and that is a very dangerous circle and cycle that we're continuing to instill. <laughs>